Our first uh, scripture reading of the morning is from the book of Philippians. I'm continuing my sermon series, which I launched last week. We looked at Philippians chapter one. Today we're looking at Philippians chapter two, and um, I'm gonna have them pop that up on the screen, specifically uh, verse three, because you're gonna see the words there in verse three, selfish ambition, selfish ambition, and that is actually a compound Greek word, and the word is kenodoxia. It comes from two words, the words keno, which means to empty, and then the word doxia, which means glory, like we sing the doxology. So you put them together, you get kenodoxia, which means empty glory or vain glory. And this is what happens when we uh, selfishly pursue things in our lives that we think will puff us up to make us look good. And the Apostle Paul in this passage in Philippians says that is the wrong attitude to have. Because rather than looking primarily at our own interests, he says we should be at least concerned with the interests of others. So an example, really the great example as my sermon title indicates today, that Paul uses to show the Philippians what he means is in Jesus Christ himself. And so with that as sort of an introduction, I want to invite you to join me as I read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from kenodoxia, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, have you ever noticed that in all of those old Western movies, uh, the hero seems to always come from out of town? There's common, hardworking people, but they've made a big mess of things. Bad hombres have seized power, and now a stranger has to arrive on the scene to set things right. The old Western movie, Shane, and you have to go back to the 1950s, opens with a small homesteading family that's set against a magnificent Rocky Mountain backdrop. And one day the little boy in the family looks up and he sees a lone rider approaching him and he speaks, the little boy, the opening words of the movie, someone's coming, Pa. And Alan Ladd, in the role of Shane, sort of moseys up and says, hope you don't mind my cutting through your place. Well, before 10 minutes go by, the bad guys, the Riker gang, have appeared on the scene. And they look suspiciously at Shane and they snarl with disdain. Who are you, stranger? And there you have it. The, the plot of the entire movie has been laid out in less than 10 minutes. We have disputed property, we have bad guys with guns, and a stranger who will ultimately save the day. If you think about it, every Western movie tells the story of the gospel. People on earth have problems. We have made a big mess of things. We have surrendered our freedom to destructive powers, and we're paralyzed with fear. 
And so the solution then has to come from somewhere else, from beyond ourselves. We need a hero from out of town. We need a hero from out of this world. And friends, Jesus Christ is our hero who has come from beyond to save us. In fact, one scholar, and I just love this, calls Jesus the beyond in our midst. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul is hinting at in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to invite you to join me as we look at our second reading. And it's still in Philippians 2, and we're going to continue what I started. And I'll be looking at verses 5 through 11. So Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 11. Again, I invite you to follow along on the screen. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. God, as we gather as your people this morning, we sit here and we're trembling because we are trying to ponder the mystery of the person of Jesus Christ, especially as we try to understand who he really is. May our response today come not just from our lips, but also from our lives. And we pray this in the incomparable name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Growing up as a little boy in the church that I grew up in, in, up in northern New Jersey, our uh, Sunday school curriculum showed a cartoon character, a very pale-looking and pious man of somewhat dubious gender who had long flowing hair like something out of a Clairol ad. Is it really any wonder that men have a hard time identifying with Jesus and being one of his followers? After all, who wants their Lord and Savior to look like Fabio, right? And yet, when we open up the pages of Scripture, we discover that to meet Jesus Christ was a startling experience. Because everywhere he went, he moved in wonder and astonishment. And people wanted to know about this man. Well, here we are, 2,000 years later, and many people still have that same kind of curiosity. In fact, someone has taken the time to figure out that more has been written about Jesus Christ in the last 20 years than in the previous 20 centuries. There have been books, there have been movies, there have been articles in the newspaper and in secular magazines like People and Time and Newsweek. We had Mel Gibson's movie from about 15 years ago, The Passion of the Christ, There's the TV series, The Chosen. There's the movie last year, Jesus Revolution. And then there's those Jesus Gets Us commercials that are on TV. People are interested in wanting to know who is Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have an ancient document, the Apostles' Creed, which affirms that Jesus is God's only Son, our Lord. 
Now, unfortunately, we do not have what I might call an objective biography of Jesus Christ. The gospel writers would not be able to write an objective biography of Jesus Christ any more than you could write one about your own kids. What they did was they wrote about a man who changed their lives. But they struggled to come up with the right words to try to accurately describe who he is. Now, to give you an idea of the gravitational pull of Jesus Christ, think about this. What would it take for you to walk away from your job, kiss your family goodbye, put your retirement on hold, and go off with a stranger who doesn't even offer you a roof over your own head? And so we have to ask, who is Jesus Christ? Who is this man who commands such intrigue and interest 21 centuries right up to the present day? Well, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus is the autobiography of God in human flesh and blood. Listen again to what he writes. Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at what Jesus did. He emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He humbled himself. Remember the old song that Joan Osborne sings? What if God were one of us, just a stranger on the bus, trying to find his way home. And so we have to wonder, is this any way for God to come to us? When Queen Elizabeth died in September of 2022, there was this outpouring of love and admiration from all over the world. Mourners, it is said, stood in lines nearly five miles long and waited up to 24 hours to pay their final respects. Now, about you but I start getting antsy after about two or three minutes waiting in line at Giants. These folks were out there all night long. It's, I guess, a, a tribute to her longevity and the fact that Queen Elizabeth was the longest reigning monarch in England's history. Well, the Queen's former bodyguard, a man by the name of Richard Griffin, tells of the time that he and the queen were vacationing up at her holiday home in Scotland when she and her bodyguard bumped into a couple of Americans who were on vacation. And they struck up a conversation, and it was apparent that these tourists did not recognize Queen Elizabeth, which was just fine with her. In fact, one of the tourists asked her how long she had been vacationing in the area. And when Queen Elizabeth replied that basically all of her life, these clueless tourists said, well, then they must know the queen or have met her at some point since the queen also had a vacation home nearby. Well, Queen Elizabeth sort of playfully uh, replied that she had not met the queen, but she turned to her bodyguard and said, Richard here meets with her regularly. Well, one of the excited tourists asked what the queen was like. And now you have to know that Richard Griffin had been the queen's bodyguard for a long time. So he knew that uh, he could kind of pull her leg. And so he said to the tourists, these uh, vacationers from America, she can be a cantankerous lady at times, but she does have a lovely sense of humor. 
Well, the next thing they knew, one of the American tourists put his arm around the bodyguard's shoulder, handed the camera to Queen Elizabeth, and said, can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> the queen obliged. And then Richard Griffin took the camera and took a picture of the queen with all of these still clueless tourists without ever revealing her identity. And after they said their goodbyes, the queen whispered to her bodyguard, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they show those pictures to their friends back in America. Hopefully someone tells them who I am. Can you imagine the surprise on those tourist faces? They were talking to the Queen of England and they did not even know it. Well, Queen Elizabeth certainly knew who she was and she had this, this inner assurance, this calm confidence about who she was and she didn't boast about it. She didn't let the crown go to her head, but she actually led a life of quiet humility. And I, maybe that's one of the things that people loved about her. She did not have anything to prove. And Paul explains that even though Jesus was in the very nature of God himself, he set his prerogatives about God aside. Listen again closely at what the Apostle Paul says in verses 5 through 11. And these verses happen to be what many scholars uh, think are a kind of pre-existing hymn or maybe a poem that Paul sort of works into his letter to the church in Philippi. But they describe something that's rather amazing. They describe God's continual downward descent into our flawed, frail human condition. And Paul's words powerfully illustrate how God sheds himself of his glory in order to come to us. And then Jesus does this without losing any sense of his divinity. Although he was in the very form and nature of God, as Paul writes, he, he sort of lays aside his rights as God and takes the very form and nature of a human being. And of course, not just any human being, but a servant and a slave, and ultimately one who's condemned to a cross. Jesus knew that only by sinking so low could he ever reach you and me in the depths of our sin? I just love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis says that Jesus came like a diver who stripped off his clothes and dove into the water. He writes, he vanished down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down into ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hands the dripping precious thing he went down to recover. And friends, that dripping precious thing that Jesus went down to recover is you and me. Of course, when Jesus went down into that realm of slime and decay, some of that slime stuck to him. Jesus broke into our world in human flesh and blood, and he experienced all the highs and the lows and the trappings and the temptations that you and I will ever have to face. Think about it. Jesus went through 40 lonely days in the desert. He experienced incredible frustration with his disciples. He verbally sparred with his critics. He was betrayed, denied, rejected, and abandoned in his time of need. And he went through it all for you and me. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he who knew no shame endured shame 
so that he might lift us out of our shame. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that he might extend the hand of forgiveness to you and me in order that we might be set in a right relationship with God. That's why Jesus came. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. Before the creation of the world, God knew that we as his beloved children would rebel. God knew that each of us would do exactly what Adam did in the garden, asserting our own will over and above God's will. God knew that he could either let us flounder around in our own dead-end ways or die in our sins, or God could do what no one else could ever imagine. God could come down and in Jesus Christ bear the cost of our sins on the cross himself so that we might be lifted up and forgiven. Jesus came in order to save us. I don't know how many hockey fans we have out there, but the word save in hockey has a very specific meaning. A save is when the goalie stops the puck from going into the net. The goalie is sort of the last line of defense for a hockey team. And you know, sometimes goalies are called upon you know, 25 times, 35 times, even 45 times to make all kinds of acrobatic saves to try to keep the puck out of the net and help their team win the game. In other words, the goalie saves today for his team. Jesus didn't come just to save the day. He came to save us for all time. So friends, when we look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, that is the true meaning of who God is. Jesus is our Savior. And he not only saves us, but it is what Paul wants us to imitate in our own lives and in the practice of our own faith. Because if Jesus could give himself like that for us, and, and, and fully enter our human experience and go all the way to the cross to save us, then can we not give like that to others? Can we consider each other's needs? Can we seek each other's good? Can we approach someone else with humility? Because we know who we truly are in Jesus Christ. We've got nothing to prove, but so much to share. The one who lowered himself has now been elevated to the highest place and the highest praise. As Paul says, Jesus has been given the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' humility and self-giving love is the perfect expression of who God really is. And it is also who we must be as well. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, there are uh, people, maybe people here or people watching who are unsure of who Jesus is, what he did and why he did it. May today, today be the day 
when we bear witness to the good news of the one who came for us, the one who came as a servant, the one who came in humility, the one who came to save us. By your Holy Spirit, move us from being fans to being followers. Where we go from admiring Jesus Christ at a distance to falling on our knees, confessing with our tongues, and worshiping him as God's only begotten son. May we proclaim his name above every name in word and deed and in all that we say and do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.